Welcome to The Way Home with Laura Smith, the show that brings you wonderful guests, helpful advice, and uplifting stories. The Way Home, live inspired. Here's your host, Laura Smith. Well, I hope indeed you are inspired on a daily basis and uh, that the guests I bring you make you feel that way on some level. I'm really looking forward to having my friend William DeFore coming, Dr. William DeFore. He actually, uh, we did a radio show together on Sirius XM many years ago, not together, but he was on the same channel that I was running, uh, which was a health and wellness channel. And he's written, I believe it's his eighth book. It's called Good Finding. It's a user's guide to EQ and your brilliant mind. And he talks all about how to put that brilliant mind into action so that you can have your best and happiest life. It's all brought to you by Balance of Nature, fruits and veggies in a capsule, bringing you a happy and healthy life for sure. Good nutrition in the way of capsules, food that has been, uh, well, the water taken out and the nutrition left in, it's pulverized and put into these capsules that therefore give you 10 heaping servings of fresh fruits and vegetables, exactly what your body needs to function at its optimum every day. And it really truly is um, a unique way to get your fruits and vegetables in because there are other ways to do it. But if you're like me, you're not crazy about all the shopping, the expensive shopping that is for them, and then coming home and preparing them and trying to keep them as nutritious as they are when you buy them raw. It's not easy to do. And I find that it's also... Well, I'm not good at getting them all eaten before they start to go bad in my fridge or on the counter. So... That's where balance of nature comes in. It takes the ease and puts it into the capsules so that you can rest in your mind knowing that you're getting the nutrition you need from those fruits and vegetables every single day without all that hard work and and the cost of what it, it takes to do that as well. Balance of nature makes it easy. Go to balanceofnature.com, the website, and order it. But when you do, right now, I think they have a special offer going on. If you put my name into the promo code, Laura, L-A-U-R-A, you're going to get $25 off your first preferred order. You're also going to get a free uh, canister of the fiber and spice. That is the only other product that Balance of Nature makes. Fruits, veggies, and fiber and spice. And it is an amazing product. Absolutely wonderful. It's a $50 value. So now is the time to get started on your New Year's resolution to be healthier and more energetic and more mentally alert by taking all this wonderful uh, food into your system. Laura into the promo code. And when we come back, Dr. William DeFore with Good Finding. Don't go away. It's the way home. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. One of my greatest joys with this job is that I get to talk to not only new people that have written books or um, have a new platform of some sort, but I love it when my old friends have done such a thing. And so I'm very grateful to have someone I haven't talked to in many, many years, but he made such an impression on me when uh, we worked together basically at Sirius XM on a channel called Lime, which uh, Lime Radio, which I was um, fortunate enough to be able to put together and I ran it. I was the program director, had a show on it, but um, I was able to find some of the most extraordinary uh 
speakers and teachers in the world and authors. And William DeFore, Dr. William DeFore, was one of them. And he has a brand new book. And so it brought us back together for The Way Home with Laura Smith. So I'm so grateful to have Bill DeFore here. A, a good finding is the name of it. We're going to hear all about what good finding means. It's a, a wonderful topic that has so much depth to it. A user's guide to EQ and your brilliant mind. William, thank you so much for being on the way home. Thank you, Laura. I'm glad to be here. It's a beautiful book. It's almost like a guidebook, I would say, um, in terms of how you've laid it out and all these ideas for for people. You know, there's a lot of books out there on how to live your best life, on um, self-help and things like that. But a lot of it is is not easy to really kind of sit down and learn the process to be able to follow it. Yours does. Good finding does. So I want to just start by, I know you have a story about how you came up with that term, good finding, but I'd like to hear it from you again and um, tell us uh, what it means because it's used throughout the entire uh, premise of the book. Well, our mind is like a search engine that's always busy looking for and finding things to focus on. Sometimes three o'clock in the morning when we'd rather be sleeping, our busy mind can get fixated on different topics. And um, so this is the intentional use of that searching and finding process. Um, Our mind is a brilliant tool, and yet we never have been educated on how to use it effectively. And when we use it effectively and find what is good, right, and working within us and the world around us, it it works better. It, it activates higher brain functions. It brings in our, our loving heart. And it actually helps us to connect with our authentic spiritual self. So it's, it's a, you know, using the mind intentionally just opens a portal to so much value. Yes. And I would say some people might think, oh, well, this sounds like a sort of a scientific approach, uh, being that your mind and you talk about the brain. But you really, like you said, you really are incorporating the aspects of the spirit of of, of the mind and also uh, the heart and the soul. Um, so good finding, meaning focusing on maybe the higher aspects of, of life. It You talk a lot about how many of us... and. and unwittingly or wittingly we we stay at a certain level a lot with our thinking with our thoughts and they're at this base level of survival and our our current needs and our fears mm-hmm. and things like that um that you say is inherent in in humanity however there is another place that you can find good things within mm-hmm. that and so um talk about that a little bit the difference between mm-hmm. the sort of the lower lower aspect of the mind and then the higher the, the default mechanism of the mind is to find and focus on problems that need to be resolved, potential threats and tasks that need to be completed. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a very useful thing. We want to solve our problems and complete our tasks and, and deal with any potential threat. The problem comes when a person allows too much of their consciousness to be consumed by just problems and tasks and threats. Because there's more happening than problems, tasks, and threats. You know, there's this beautiful, magnificent miracle of life that every moment is a privilege to be alive on this planet. 
And there's so much mystery and, and magic going on. And we're going to miss that if we're just going from problem to problem and task to task. Absolutely. Um, some people would, you know, t- argue for that being that, well, but that's just the way life is. I get up in the morning, the kids need to be fed and get off to school. I got to get to work. I got to pay the bills. I got to do this. You know, how am I supposed to find the magic in all of that? Well, that's a very good question. And you're right. A lot of people live right there because they're very busy. And particularly people have kids and are working, etc. But if you take three seconds to look into the eyes of that magical child that you're getting ready for school and look into their eyes and, and open your mind and heart to the mystery of who this child is and just look at them and go, wow, I'm so glad you're here. Now let's get you dressed. You know, you don't have to stop the task. You don't have to ignore all of the things that need to be done. Just take those brief moments at every opportunity to appreciate the beauty and the miracle of each person and each moment. You talk a lot about that in Good Finding in your your latest book and live appreciating. And I, you really, you break it down. A- appreciate your body. Appreciate your mind. Appreciate your relationships. Appre- mm-hmm. Appreciate, appreciate. And then you talk about the same, you do the same thing in terms of living in gratitude. Mm-hmm. And um, so you place such a big emphasis on that. And is that so are those some of the ways in which we can get from that sort of basic mind of task orientation and and fear and problem solving to the miraculous, to the mysterious, to the beautiful? Yes, absolutely. The there's been a lot of research being done on the value and the importance of positive emotion. And when you activate positive emotion, like having children, raising children, it's, it's all about love. It's not about getting things done. I mean, yeah, we do have to get things done, but without love, it's just this empty string of tasks and, and connection does not occur. So that we open our heart to love by focusing our mind on what's good and right and working. And like children can be a problem, right? They can misbehave and do things you don't want them to do. And if your focus is on getting those problems solved, you're going to miss the beauty of that magical child. And, and so when you focus on your gratitude for that child and your appreciation of their uniqueness and maybe love their rebellious spirit, it's causing them to create difficulties for you. And if you embrace that, it expands the relationship. It's more whole and complete. And the tasks can still be done, but ultimately so much more effectively when the heart is open to love and when, and the mind with focusing on appreciation opens the heart to love. I, absolutely. And you, you actually talk about in one place about, it reminds me of the, the quote in the Bible about give thanks in all things. And you talk a lot about go ahead and go over what's happened in the past, even the difficult, very difficult things, but see them in the, with the eyes of appreciation. How does somebody do that in reality? It's not easy. Sometimes we look at the past and if we see a mistake, we feel so ridden with guilt or we feel so overwhelmed by sadness. How do you find appreciation in those things? Well, the, 
you mentioned, you know, the sadness and the guilt and maybe shame or regret. Those are emotional, uh, like lead weights that hold us down and they can actually create density in our energetic system, contributing to the likelihood of illness. So this is not just a don't worry, be happy <laughs> approach or be happy or you know, look on the sunny side. It's actually very practical because if we don't utilize our mind to open our heart and to focus on the good and the beauty of the world, we will create density and illness in ourselves. We create, we, a system becomes toxic when it has too much density and blockage in it. And so we're keeping our entire system open and fluid and the energy moving by focusing on the brighter and more beautiful aspects of life. The thing that's so challenging, Laura, is that the difficulties and the darkness and, and the, the pain producing and the fear producing elements are like magnetic and they pull the attention in and the person can close down and get tunnel vision in those dimensions. And yet it's such a great cost if the person allows that to be predominant in their life and they don't recognize this incredible beauty that is all the time everywhere. Now, back to your question specifically, how do you find the good in something that was horrible? How do you find value in something that just seemed like an atrocity that never should have occurred? This is where the power of 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 um, using your mind intelligently and bringing in emotional intelligence comes in. It's like whatever it is, you make it valuable by looking at how did I grow stronger and smarter and wiser because of this? Like, okay, that happened and I hated it. And I don't want it to happen any anybody else. And I would never perpetrate that on anybody else. But now that it's happened, it is part of my life experience. How can I get smarter and stronger because of it? That's how we rise above. That's how we find the value and the goodness in the bad. Mm-hmm. The lessons learned is just part yes. of it. And yeah. you talk about, um, at one point in Good Finding in your new book, uh, about what you, what you focus on grows, what you look upon grows. Explain a little bit of that. Is yeah. that the law of attraction in another language? Yes. Yes, it is. And it's also about the power of perception and the power of focus. Many people do not realize that our focus is a creative mechanism. And we are all living in our own reality. <laughs> we really are. We'd like to think that we, we know what the true reality capital R is. But in fact, each one of us has our own version of reality. And so that what we pay attention to grows is that's the how you're creating your own reality. There are people who right now believe that the world is horrible and bad and getting worse all the time. And intelligent people, right? Smart people. You probably know some. We mm -hmm. all do. And there are people who believe that the world is getting better all the time. Hmm. Now, and both are correct according to what they focus on. Right now, we can gather all kinds of data and proof to demonstrate the world is bad and getting worse. And we can provide a lot more data that's not as readily available because it's not 
in mainstream media. It's not sensational. But data and proof that the world is, in fact, getting better, that we are all improving, that information is also available. So the question is, what kind of reality do you want to create for yourself? The optimist lives in a world that is that has data and information about bright and beautiful things happening. The pessimist has data and information that about dark and difficult things. That is so what they pay attention to grows because it is the reality that they're creating for themselves. Now there are a lot of people that would argue about this, like we've got to face the facts, you know. This mm-hmm. is you know, I, I saw this news program last night and it states clearly that blah blah blah. Well, the fact is that, as you well know, you're in the media. News, mainstream news, has to sell, right? And in order to sell, it's got to be sensational. That's not the type of information and content that you provide because you're not giving the nightly news. You're providing information that's uplifting and encouraging and inspiring about multiple dimensions of human experience. But it's not selling the way the nightly news does, the way the latest disaster sells. So we have to be educated consumers of the information coming across the waves. And and that that determines the reality we live in. So what we pay attention to grows because our attention, our focusing is a creative process. Absolutely. I think of that so often, uh, William, about how, you know, if you do open a newspaper and 95.9 or 99% of it is something negative. And I always say to myself, at the same time, all this negative stuff was happening. There was an equal amount of joyous, beautiful, wonderful things that were happening. And yet it's just not focused on. So we we do a good news segment every a week in this show it'll be coming up uh soon and i just because that's a choice right mm-hmm. so a lot of what you talk about in good finding is that this is a choice how you view how you perceive how you choose is is something that it's a conscious thing it's not because we can find ourselves even the most positive of us that feel like we really live a positive life we can find ourselves in that rotation of tasks that need to be done, fear of things that need to happen or might not happen, and all those types of things. We all find ourselves in those, as you said at the beginning of our, our segment together. And yet your good finding is that you really can train yourself to start seeing this. So you've kind of laid out a wonderful, wonderful guide book to this in good finding Oh my goodness. I wish we could teach this to children, um, you know, in school or something, because I don't think people are aware. And even when they get older and adults, they're not aware of how they can train their thinking. I, I say more than in mind, it's like they're thinking how sure. they perceive things. And sure. so do you have hope for us in that sense? Like, your book is going is teaching how to do that, and it and it's put together in such beautiful ways that are really truly practical. Um, is it something that you think a lot of people are open to? Um, more so now, are we evolving as a species? Are we trying to be more positive as we evolve? Yeah, I'm. I, I'm not trying to fix 
what's broken. I'm trying to join in with the people who are already creating value because it's huge. I've, I started a good finding newsletter probably 25 years ago. And at first I thought I'm not going to, I'm concerned I wasn't going to be able to find enough positive news. Now it's huge. It's all over the place. It's not sensational. It's not intention, attention grabbing, but it's there and it's gigantic. And you mentioned there is as much good as there is bad. There's actually far more. Ah. Far. And I was doing a talk on good finding once at one point in, at Cooper Aerobics Center, and there was a news media executive who was present. He said, what people don't realize is that we report the exceptional. And these these sensational events, we're reporting them because they're exceptional. The big picture of things is not newsworthy. Like, what if our headlines started being saying last night, 40 billion people, or this many, this many billion people, or this many million people had dinner together and tucked their kids in and slept well and got up and went to work. <laughs> right. right. And this, this many cities had the infrastructure that worked because everybody showed up and did their job. Mm-hmm. Finding is about taking nothing for granted or appreciating every heartbeat, every positive experience in a service with the service industry. It's about expanding the heart and mind to be in an ongoing state of appreciation and gratitude and optimism. Steven Pinker has done some really good work. Uh, Enlightenment Now is one of his books. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he he's, I heard an interview with him and this interviewer said, well, you're such an optimist. He said, I'm actually not an optimist. He said, I'm a researcher. The information I pro- provide gives people optimism, but I'm just researching and telling you what's going on. And his research indicates there is improvement across the board in all aspects of our human functioning globally. But that doesn't, that, you know, people go to sleep to hear that kind of information. It's not sensational. <laughs> Right. It won't sell. But you know what? It They think it won't sell, but it does sell. Because if you think about the positive thinking movement that maybe start, well, it started probably in the 1800s um, with a lot of metaphysical studies and such. But, you know, you think of a Norman Vincent Peale who started preaching at, you know, Marble Collegiate in Manhattan. And, you know, he was talking, it was really, he was preaching positivity and it was kind of, it was people were very, you know, shocked by that because, you know, a lot of, you know, religiosity before that that had gone before was all about doom and gloom. And that's mm-hmm. how you get in line. And mm-hmm. that's how you please God is by, you know, making sure that you're just, you know, so miserable and humble that you don't mm-hmm. enjoy life. So he came along and he changed a lot of that. And after that, of course, we have so many. You mentioned Stephen Pinker, but I'm mm-hmm. thinking of everybody from Deepak mm-hmm. Chopra to Don Miguel Ruiz to you mm-hmm. to uh, conversations with God, uh, 
who also used to do the radio show with us on Lime Radio, um, at Neil Donna Walsh. There's just a, a, a plethora of people who are really shining lights on all of this. And, and there's, a, there's a market for it. We know that, mm-hmm. you know, pe- people love it and people are following it. And, and, and I love following you on social media because your posts are always beautiful. They're always positive and they're real. You have a, a beautiful relationship with your wife and it just comes, it just, you know, pours out of the pages and it's not intentional to, you know, you know, have people be jealous of you or anything like that. It, it's just a, it's a real way that you express yourself. And I find that that is much more attractive to follow than any type of sensationalistic type of stuff. Although I do get addicted to some of them, Twitter and, you know, things like that. I'm, I'm a news anchor uh, on the radio station in the morning. So I, I tend to have to do th- this, but I, it's so important to infuse it with what you said, the good finding of it. And I really urge everyone to, to get your new book, your latest book, because you have so many and so many audible. And I really urge people to find Dr. William DeFore online with his books, with his, uh, speaking engagements that he's done that are, are recorded because you will absolutely grow, learn and love from all of them. But his latest is called Good Finding, a user's guide to EQ and your brilliant mind. And let me tell you, it's just chock full of ways to make you feel that your life truly is beautiful and you have so much to be grateful for. William DeFore, thank you so much. Where can people find you, especially? What is your website? Well, it's easy. Goodfinding.com. I love all one, it. all one word, goodfinding.com. And, and you can access everything there, the books, the audio books, et cetera. I urge everyone to do a goodfinding.com. Thank you so much for being on the way home. What an absolute pleasure to see you. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Laura. I enjoyed it very much. You're listening to The Way Home. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. We've been hearing a lot about AI these days and all aspect of life that it seems to be infiltrating, but also improving in many ways, uh, doing the work of um, just the highest intelligence. And here's one that you may be excited to learn that it might be making a big difference in life. At Northwestern Medicine Bloom Cardiovascular Institute Center for Artificial Intelligence, uh, Dr. Faraz Ahmed is a cardiologist and associate director there, and uh, he's using it in his programs and helping uh, to detect all sorts of things by this new modality. Dr. Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us today, and tell us about the incredible addition of having AI help to detect uh, heart problems. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, So at Northwestern Medicine, in our Center for AI, we've been really interested in becoming more proactive in helping our patients with heart failure and even other cardiovascular conditions get the right care at the right time using AI technologies. We're sitting on a ton of data being a large health system. And the question is, can AI help us sift through the data and find patients in need of certain treatments? Heart failure is a yeah, heart failure is a very common condition. It affects over 6 million U.S. adults. And a subset of those patients develop advanced heart failure, up to 25%. And those are severe symptoms, um, despite being on the best medical therapies. So our so, team 
Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. Are you, you're saying heart fail. So that that's not the same as a heart attack or is it? I'm sorry. I just want to be clear. Oh, of course. Um, it is different. Um, so heart failure refers to a condition where there are changes in sort of the structure or function of the heart muscle. Um, and that causes a syndrome where patients feel short of breath or fatigued or have extra fluid sometimes and other symptoms. Now, a heart attack is when there's a blockage in a heart um, in a heart artery, and that can cause the heart muscle to be affected and can ultimately cause heart failure. But there's also a lot of other ways heart failure is caused. Um, things like genetics, things like longstanding high blood pressure, diabetes, lots of things can cause heart failure. I see. Okay. So what exactly, or how exactly should I say, would this AI work? Does it is it with the patient on the patient or is it back at the hospital giving data? Where is it? <laughs> yeah, I know it's a, it's a great question. Um, and so for this particular program, we're using the data in our electronic data warehouse, which is on servers that we host um, in our data warehouse. And then we are running um, the algorithms themselves on the cloud, you know, just how a lot of algorithms are run outside of healthcare. And we're sifting through the data and finding these patients with advanced heart failure. And then the model has an output and it, it says this patient has advanced heart failure or not. And for those who have advanced heart failure, we have a nurse that reviews that output and then helps coordinate care for that patient and get them in to see a heart failure specialist if they haven't seen one before. That's really incredible. And is this something that's literally just on the scene or has it been sort of in the making for a while? So I think for years, clinicians have used risk models of some kind to make, to inform decisions. Um, not all of them used what's called AI or machine learning, um, but we've certainly used risk models in a lot of ways. In the last few years in healthcare, there's been a lot of interest in using these AI powered models um, just because of the diversity and the amount of data we have. And we're still really in the early days of figuring out how to best deploy these, trying to figure out, do they really work and are they cost effective? And are they? Uh, we, we're figuring out. We're figuring that out. I'd say. I, I'd uh-huh. say there, um, you know, there are some technologies. There, the, you know, there are over 500 AI algorithms that have been approved by the FDA. I think about 20% are for cardiovascular conditions. Very few of them have been tested in sort of prospective clinical trials that helps generate the evidence to really scale them. Those are things we're partnering with companies to try to study. This particular program was a is a pilot program that we're actually working to improve our model right now, and then we're hoping to scale it um, depending on how the next steps go. And also at Northwestern Medicine, um, there's something new, which is this AI fellowship, and so it's to help mentor the next generation of clinicians in the emerging area of AI. Are you going to be part of that, Doctor Amit? Yeah, so I um so I wish when I was a fellow I would I would have done the training program. It's a really amazing program. It uh we basically take fellows, so people who've completed their residency and and sometimes cardiology fellowship or surgery fellowship and we have them spend a year with the engineers at our school of engineering in Evanston and they get a masters in AI and so we have these uniquely duly trained clinician engineers. Um I would probably do it myself, but my wife told me I can't do any other degrees or programs. <laughs> so I think I'm done with training for now. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, well, that's exciting. And it sounds like the future is already here in terms of medical care. And it's very exciting. And, and it certainly is, uh, sounds like a positive 
a direction for sure. Dr. Farazamad, thank you so much for joining us. Cardiologist and Associate Director of Northwestern Medicine, Bloom Cardiovascular Institute Center for Artificial Intelligence. It's a long name, but a very important one at that. Thank you so much for joining us on The Way Home. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Once again, here's Laura. Well, since the pandemic, a lot of companies and businesses and different uh, uh, different challenges are facing all sorts of uh, workplace environments and situations. So the YPO, which is the Young President's Organization, has um, this huge global community of CEOs that met probably one of the largest groups ever to do this across 96 countries and more than 47 industries. And they found out all sorts of things, where people are at this point in terms of their companies and employees and how businesses are faring in this post-pandemic time. And I have a guest, Dan Mickelson. He is the founder and CEO of In Common, and I love the name. And uh, he's going to tell us what some of the findings are from the latest survey. Hi, Dan. Thank you. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. And, you know, so I'll just build on what you just said. So the the one thing that we all have in common is that it doesn't matter where we are or where we work. Um, it, you could be in South Bend, you could be in New York, you could be in another country, you could be in a small company, a big company, you could be in a service-based company or a product-based company. It doesn't matter. Everyone's feeling this change. It is a little confusing what, you, what you're reading about now. Some companies are, it sounds like there are, there's no work, workers to be had at all. And then I see a lot of young people getting hired with these fabulous jobs and, the, and, and, a, and a hybrid situation where they don't have to be in the office all the time. And they're getting all the benefits and, you know, all sorts of things. So it's kind of hard to gauge, you know, what really is happening. The two headlines that uh, really came out of the report is one regarding business outlook. So how are CEOs looking at it next year? And here's the twist. <laughs> uh, CEOs are actually more concerned about the future coming out of the pandemic than they were when they were in the middle of the pandemic. So the level mm-hmm. of optimism uh, has really dropped significantly. And it's really for three reasons. Uh, inflation, inflation, inflation. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's, that's really Pretty top simple. of mind. Yeah, not surprising, right? The mm-hmm. second is what you were just alluding to, like this massive shift in how work works. Uh, really can be captured in two words, company culture, right? So things have changed very, very, very much. Maybe the biggest change in human history and how work works in a short period of time. And it's causing a very real sense of anxiety and in some cases, conflict between leaders and the people that work for them. Um, so yeah, like the hybrid situation you just brought up, that's my daughter, Emma. She just graduated from college. Uh, we told her, absolutely try to get a job where you could be on site. Uh, at least you found one where you could be on site two or three days a week, because we all know those experiences and those relationships are really important. But yet at the same time, to your point, people really like that flexibility. So kind of threading that needle is really hard. Yeah, absolutely. And and yet, but there's, a, there's another breed. Uh, I don't know if you saw the, 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 I think it was on TikTok. It was this young kid who's a barista at Starbucks, and he was literally crying into the camera saying he can't believe he has to work eight hours and how difficult Mm. it is to do that. Mm. And I thought my my boss and I were talking about it and we were laughing and we were like, oh, my goodness, like, is that really that age group? Are they really like that, that they don't? They think that working eight hours somewhere is like, you know, way too much for them. I don't think that's across the board. No, it's not. You know, so it's really interesting. So you mentioned TikTok. So I don't spend time there, but I do spend time on LinkedIn. 
And on LinkedIn, not that long ago, there was this post with all these headlines about how people who've been working for, let's say, a decade or two or three are now looking at people entering the workforce during this really kind of challenging and confusing time. And you read the headlines and they're all things that you've heard or, or would say or, you know, we might say to each other. It turns out that uh, some of the headlines were from 1910. Some of them were from 1930. Some of them were for 1950 and on and on, you know, so there's always this gap and the next generation didn't work maybe as hard as we did or that perception. The reality, though, is when you look at the data that we have and the survey we just conducted, it's really not the case. I mean, I think this is a hard thing for all of us. Right. So after having, you know, my kids were two years in remote school. Right. Like many uh, people did uh, and had that experience. And we knew it was horrible. We knew they didn't prefer it. And guess what? All schools have shifted to being on site now. The workplace has lagged. So if you really wanted to be ironic about it, you would say, well, hold on. All the young people are actually back on site. And yet it's the people who uh, are working who are preferring this hybrid or remote approach. So I think there's like a, a positive spin here we could talk about a little bit. Um, but I think that is no doubt the remnant of a really tough two or three years and us trying to sort through what it means to us and to the people we love, you know, our family and friends. It's it's a confusing time. Where do you think it's going to go, Dan, uh, in terms of, you know, the culture itself, the, the work culture and um, people actually showing up and wanting to work again, you know, at the highest capacity? Where is this all going to go, do you think? Well, you know, so if you take a look at the data, uh, here's what I would share. Um, so pre-pandemic, about two out of every 10 people in the world worked either in what would be referred to now as a hybrid or remote setting, two out of every 10. Now it's over five out of every 10. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as I say to people, shift happens. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> the, the genie is out of the bottle. Good luck putting it back in because a lot of companies have, you know, pulled back on office space, right? I mean, you've seen what's gone on in the probably yeah. in the commercial market. I'm sitting here in New York right now at this conference with 2,500 other CEOs. I'm looking at the window, out the window across the way at a completely empty office building. Wouldn't surprise yes. a person, wouldn't surprise a single person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so things really have shifted. And now what you need to do is pivot, right? Um, so when you're faced with the challenge, if you're a leader, you know, you kind of embrace it, right? And this is a challenging time. So the question is, is how can you, I don't know, this is going to sound really corny, but how do you turn that frown upside down? So how do you take the good things that come with flexibility, but yet nurture the things that bring people together? So you're going to need to really focus on what I say are four things that are core, and it's an acronym, easy for at least me to remember. <laughs> I need those things. Uh, but the first one's community. People need to feel a sense of belonging. I don't care if it's a school they go to, the community they live in, or the company they work with or for. If they don't feel that, they will be very transient and transactional with that workplace. Second thing is they need to feel like there's a future opportunity. So if they don't have a career path or something they're working towards, they'll start to regress. Third thing is relationships. You are half as likely to leave a company if you have two or three friends. So nurturing and building those relationships is core, not to the productivity, efficiency, effectiveness, but also just to retention. And then mm-hmm. the last thing is experiences. If 
personally and professionally, experiences are what help us grow. You know, it's much different to watch a, uh, a TV show uh, about New York than walk around the streets. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, those are two very different things. And that experiential learning is huge. And those things don't happen in a remote or hybrid setting. So you're going to need to be methodical. You're going to need to be deliberate about bringing people together and then making sure those kind of things happen. It's the only way Absolutely. Forward. Absolutely. And I'm seeing a shift also, um, even, you know, uh, where I work, um, that companies are moving into this uh, sort of a, uh, uh, either paid time off situation where people can kind of pick and choose when they want right. to take off. It's not all under this, you know, prescripted you, you have to work this many hours. And if you don't use your time off, you, you lose it or you get to drag it over to the next year, but it's still only a certain amount of hours. I see that a lot of companies are changing that. And I think that's it. That's a trend that it might stick around because I think they're finding that people don't take advantage of it the way you would think they do. They actually, it makes them feel more valued. And so they show up more. You're totally you heard right. about that. You're totally right. So, I mean, I, I was part of a company that we helped grow from 50 people to 6,000 people. And then I was running a company for a decade that we grew from 50 people to 500 people, right? So, you know, the, the challenge with culture before was very different than it is now, right? I mean, you can uh, bring everyone into a room, you can throw an event, you know, I mean, there's that kind of proximity that drives that, that experience. Now, you're going to not... You know, it's not these tactics that are going to make up your culture. It's having an actual strategy. So there's a, there's this old saying that goes around to a lot of people that culture eats strategy for breakfast. So right now mm-hmm. it's eating it for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And it, unless people treat culture as a strategy, um, they're not going to have a strong company. And I think any leader would agree with that. Um, so you're going to have to get very, like I said, very deliberate about how you approach those things in the future. And I think it's an amazing opportunity. Like I do think wonderful things come from a personal perspective with having flexibility. On the other hand, uh, we all know that, um, you know, uh, loneliness or let's, let's just call it isolation and depression are directly correlated. So we've got to get people together. Uh, we're just going to have to do it differently than just relying on an, an office in the proverbial office cooler conversation to get it done yes. in the future. Ex- ex- exactly. Boy, it's a fascinating uh, topic and, and conversation with you. And I know we have to go, but just real quick, you you pivoted from work being a CEO of these huge companies, the 500 and the 6,000, and you founded something and you are the CEO of your own startup called In Common. Just tell us real quick what In Common is and does. And uh, then I'm so grateful we can check it out online. Yeah, yeah. So in common, if you want to learn more about it, you can go to incommon.com. If you want to get more on the YPO report, you can go to ypo.org or incommon.com. But essentially what we're building is essentially um, our platform that helps people address productivity, engagement, and retention by giving people a sense of purpose and pride in their work through a combination of applications and experiences. So it's really very simply trying to turn culture into a platform. Um, and making sure that you don't have to approach that independently, but we can approach it collectively with the best practices. So there's an old saying that the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. <laughs> so, so there are, there is a way to make work, um, ensure that people feel a sense of pride, passion, and purpose. And that's what we want for, you know, our kids, for our friends, for our family. That's what work should be about. And, uh, Absolutely. that's what, that's what in common is dedicated towards. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Incommon.com to find more about Dan Mickelson's wonderful company and all the work that he's doing there, creating purpose and passion and pride in, in work and uh, helping others to do so. And also YPO.org is that young president's organization that's just absolutely global and, and enormous and doing a lot for people and supporting them. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Way Home, Dan. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Appreciate it. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Well, uh, it was fun being in studio with my wonderful producers last week. And uh, I don't know if anybody knows that, but I, I did a quick trip out to New York and Connecticut after my fun weekend in Nashville. And so I got to do the show from there. So Bob Small, my wonderful producer, took Jimmy and I, Jimmy Dean, my my guru of good news, and I out for lunch at our favorite Italian haunt, Dopio, in Greenwich, and that was fun. It was so good to see you guys. Loved every minute of it. Absolutely, yes. We'll have to do it more often, except I drive when I go there. And let let me tell you, this was a long one, 14 hours to get there. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. It's worth it. I get to see you guys and be in studio with you. So, well, absolutely. And uh, But I'm back home and uh, in the beautiful state of Indiana, and so... I guess that's just the the jumping off point where we start to tell the good news stories because we want people to head into their work week feeling uplifted and remembering maybe a tidbit here and there, something that made them feel good to start the week. Jimmy, that's all about you. Well, I'm going to tell you the story about a woman in South Carolina who just celebrated her 50th birthday, the big 5-0. But this isn't just any 50th birthday we're talking about here. I'll tell you what makes this so special for Rima Kabori. You know why? Because it's from where she came from to where she is today. You see, she has something called cerebral palsy, and she's had it for much of her life. Doctors said she had very little chance of survival. She was a frail baby. They didn't think she'd survive until she was one. Well, not only did she get past one year, uh, she eventually made it beyond that. By her 13th birthday, she wasn't able to walk until she had several surgeries, but I must say she has been doing very, very well. And to show that love for her, a recent surprise was given to her by some family friends. Unexpectedly, they gave her a surprise birthday party at a local restaurant. Now, she did not know what was going to be happening here. You didn't know how many people were going to show up. Well, they went to this restaurant in Greenville, and all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people were there saying, Happy birthday! I mean, she was just stunned. She told a local television station she just couldn't believe who was there, and uh, just just totally unexpectedly. Well, she and eight friends went to uh, this birthday celebration, and uh, the owner there said somebody who worked at the restaurant uh, decided to get out the saxophone and serenade her. Somebody else sang happy birthday to this woman. And if that wasn't good enough, the cherry on top for this birthday cake, if you will, in some respects. Somebody in another group, we don't know who that person's name is, actually paid for the birthday lunch, this special surprise birthday lunch for this woman, Rima. And uh, nobody knows who it is. And her mother, Patricia, said, I've got to find this person. Who did this wonderful deed? She's trying to find this person on Facebook. The identity isn't known, but she wants to post the fact that what she did was such a good deed that she changed this young woman's life. I mean, this woman, I mean, it's a miracle that she is still alive today, how far she's come with cerebral palsy. But this celebration and somebody, you know, willing to pay for it. So whoever this person is, I mean, it's just a big thank you. She's blessed and everybody is so happy for her. Oh, I just love that. You know, I, it's thank goodness that um, they've 
come so far in being able to help, uh, you know, various uh, childhood diseases and, and, and problems. And and the fact that she's 50 is just wonderful. And she'll probably live a lot longer as well. And just being appreciated like that. You might say this like is that. a birthday for the ages. A birthday right? for the ages, for sure. And, you know, whoever it was that anonymously paid for her party, is those are the angels of life. And we find them everywhere in every corner of this great country and beyond in the world as well. People are so very good. All right, Jim, what else do you have? I know you usually have two for us. Yes. Uh, and this two, uh, two for the price of one. Two for the price of one. You got that right. And uh, this story comes out of, uh, out of Alabama. And there's a gentleman who just passed away on New Year's Day, but he was just a kind-hearted soul. Uh, this guy here of his name is Hody Childress, and he was a farmer in U.S. Fed. And he did something. He kept a secret for about 10 years. It started in 2012. You know what he did? On the first of every month for the last 10 years, very quietly, he would go to a Geraldine pharmacy, the local pharmacy in Geraldine uh, in Alabama, and he would hand a $100 bill to the owner, Brooke Walker, and basically said something to this. I'm going to paraphrase it. He said that, this look, this is uh, $100. Don't tell anybody it's for me. It's to help anybody who can't afford their prescriptions. It's a blessing from God. And he did this consistently the first of every month for the last 10 years up until he died on New Year's Day of this year. And uh, just it's just really something really special. So the owner uh, you know, kept the money and just you know, gradually gave this, a little bit of money here and there to some neighbors of his. The family had no idea this was happening while they went to the same pharmacy that he's been doing this act of kindness right up until recently. And uh, they just were absolutely stunned by that. So you know what they're doing? The tradition is being carried on by his one of his daughters, Tanya Nix, uh, who decided to keep paying it forward for these customers. So she's continuing this $100 bill every month to help pay for prescriptions for those who can't afford it. And it's just, I mean, I can't imagine how much money this adds up over 10 years. You can pretty much do the math. But what he did is just the fact that he does this out of the kindness of his heart to help his neighbors unbeknownst to his family. It's just a really wonderful thing. And he just left a wonderful legacy and good, great for his family to keep this alive, his memory alive by helping others. That's beautiful mm. and uh, selfless. And it's those type of acts that change lives. Sometimes it's even as much as it's the money is helping that person, what it does for their spirit to know that someone was so kind and so generous, it makes a person, any person feel cared for. And so his gift was way beyond the $100 monetary, which indeed was fantastic, a lot of money over that amount of time. But I think what it does for people's spirits when they are on the receiving end, just like that young woman who had the birthday paid for her um, anonymously, it's what it does for your spirit. It's what it says to you is that humanity is good. God sees me. People see me. I matter. And um, so I just think that's incredible. And, you know, imagine if all of us did a, a quiet, private act of kindness every month, how much better the world would be. Well, I think I need to work on that myself. I will not tell others what to do before I'm willing to do it myself. So yes. thank you for your great good news, Jim you, and okay. uh, Bobby. And thanks again for the lunch last week. I appreciate Delicious. that. Delicious. I might have to drive out there again just to get that great pizza and it's see It's worth you guys. it, isn't it? It really is. Every last just bite. To see you guys in person, totally worth it. And to be with you all each and every week here on the way home is such a gift to me. It does so much for my spirit. I hope it helps yours as well. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Take good care, stay healthy, and lots of love from the way home. I'm Laura Smith.